Well, good morning again. Good morning. Man, I got 40 minutes. That means we'll only be 30 minutes late out today. That's awesome. Uh, when I was a kid, and hopefully you don't fit into this category anymore, when I was a kid, there was no place that I loved more than a buffet. Because as a kid, a buffet represents a food world of no rules, right? I can have pizza and french fries and chicken nuggets all in the same meal. Right? These rules that have arbitrarily been put upon me that certain foods go together and are partners and parallel at a buffet, that doesn't exist anymore. Right? At a buffet, I can have Chinese food and lasagna at the exact same time, and there's no problems with that. And that's why people like buffets. Right? If you don't know what you want, if you don't know what mood you're in, you go to a buffet, they have everything. Man, do you ever run into that with your wife where you're like, where are you going to go? And she's like, I don't care. So then you name where you're going to go, and she's like, well, not there. And you're like, oh, okay, well, then how about here? Well, not there. And they go, I'm starting to get the feeling you actually do care about where we're going to go. Would you like to give me a direction of it? If you feel like you're playing this kind of game of like pin the tail on the donkey, like let's just get close, right? Well, the buffet solves that problem for you. The only thing that has happened to me as I've got older is you know what I realize about buffets? The food's not actually really good. It's a huge variety and a large quantity of a ton of mediocre to not so good food. No one ever goes, you want the very best Chinese food, go to Golden Corral. Like, no one ever says, if you want the best steak, go to Golden Corral. Like, in fact, no one, the word best and Golden Corral never collide in the same sense. And so the problem with buffets is, well, they offer you a ton of variety, and they let you make any choice that you want to make about what kind of food you want to have. At the end of the day, what you realize is, by wanting all of it, you end up with not very good of any of it. And I share that with you because that's kind of what Paul's going to talk about with us today as we look at our second part of this series called The Gospel Colored Glasses. And so what we've been talking about through this series is when you become a Christian, when the Holy Spirit comes into your life, there is a new way that you view the entire world. And that's an important thing for us because what some of us do is we, we become a Christian and what that means is my Sunday mornings from 11 to, at this church, 1245, are different than everybody else's. But all those other hours are exactly like everybody else's. The way I'm at work, the way I'm with my friends, uh, the way I am with my buddies or in my hobbies or watching sports or anything else, I look just like the rest of the world. But there's this one little window where I act different. And every now and then we get a little bit more mature and there becomes more hours of our day that we give to God. And in those hours, we maybe look a little bit different. Maybe there's a devotional we read in the morning. Maybe we spend the hour before we go to bed reading the Bible. Maybe we put some Christian music on when we're in the car. But for many, many people, what never ever happens is that the entire world becomes subservient to their view of God. Paul approaches with us in the book of 1 Corinthians is the moment you become a believer, everything, everything is looked at through the view of the gospel. 
how you spend your money, how you spend your time, how you entertain yourself, your marriage, how you raise your children, your political views, your racial views, your sex views, all of them now get looked at through the lens of the gospel. And if we don't do that, then we're people who are trying to live in two worlds at the same time. And it doesn't work. It's why you run into today so many Christians who have a buffet mentality when it comes to the Word of God. What's happened is they've realized, I can't do this. For so many years, I've tried to live on my own. I have tried to be my own master, my own God. I've planned my own path. I've tried to do things in my own wisdom, strength, patience. You name it, I've tried to do it myself. And I'm terrible at it. Amen. Every time I do it, I end up flat on my face. I mess things up. I'm a wreck. And so they go, when I come to the gospel, when I, when I look at this book, oh my gosh, here in these pages is the story of a Savior. Someone who will see me in all my darkness and go, I forgive you. Someone who at my worst still goes, I love you. Someone who will cleanse me, forgive me, and love me. And they go, I love that. That's awesome. That's the greatest story I've ever heard. I want that. I will hold on to that. But then they keep reading and go, oh, wait, there's ways he wants me to live? Oh, wait, i got to change how I talk? i got to change... How I entertain myself, I gotta change some of my relationships. I don't want those pieces. And what used to happen is that would make people have a decision where they'd go, okay, am I gonna take this or not? Is this gonna be my life? Am I gonna take this whole thing? Am I gonna hold on to it? And this is gonna become my life, and I'm gonna change things that don't fit to it. Or am I gonna go, not worth it? I like the story, I like the love part, but no, I had given up control. And they'd walk away. What we see nowadays is people go, you know what? Let's just rip out the pages I don't like. Amen. You know, I'll take the Savior part. I like that. Let's forget the Lord part. I don't need a boss every day. I like the forgiveness and the heaven and the paradise part, but I don't need the morality that tells me how to change the way I'm living my life. And they've tried to create their custom religion. They've tried to keep that one thing that fits them, which is why... No one ever likes to talk about faith anymore. Because everybody's customized theirs. We don't really actually believe in truth anymore. There is no black and white. There is no right and wrong. There's just a bunch of gray. It all kind of just depends. That's why we see so many political arguments today. Because what happens is we never acknowledge truth anymore. Your party candidate lies and change and flip-flops position? Well, that's because they've grown and matured and changed. The other party does it. See? Liar. Thief. You can't trust a thing they say. Right? If our people do it, if we like them, it's okay. If their people do it and they do it, it's not okay. Because we no longer go, wait, there's right and wrong. Anybody who does this is wrong. Anybody who does this is right. Amen. And so what Paul's getting to here is he's writing to this church in Corinth that he loves, that he planted, that he helped build. But he's writing to them going, brothers and sisters, I know in your hearts you're trusting that Jesus is your Lord. But guys, I'm hearing about how you're living. I'm hearing about how your day-to-day life is going, and you're off the rails. You are letting huge portions of your life no longer fall under the guidance of God. 
And that's scary. Amen. When you do that, He's not acting like your Lord. You got to get right. Amen. You got to choose. And so as we jumped into 1 Corinthians last week, the first place that he started is, he started with this topic about how the church needs to be united in the Word. He said, I'm hearing about you guys, and everybody's arguing about worship style. I like this pastor, I like that pastor, you like this one, mine's better than yours. Right? Everybody's arguing, not about actual truth. Right? We're not talking about people who are changing doctrines. Right? It's not like one of them was saying Jesus was real and the other was saying, eh, no, he was just kind of a figurative character. That's not the style problems. The style problems would be more akin to what we do today where we go, I want hymns. Well, no, I want contemporary music. Well, then forget you. If you don't like the same kind of Christian music as me, we're not brothers in Christ, let's not worship together anymore. That's what he was getting at. And he's going, guys, that's stupid. You have enough enemies on the outside. You have enough things on the world trying to attack you and pull you apart. And what you guys are doing is fighting about dumb things and you're dividing Christ. Amen. Why? Christ died to bring you together. Christ died to unite you in his love and in his spirit. Amen. So do that. Amen. Stop fighting over dumb things. And from there, he's going to move in into verse 18 his next topic. So if you have your Bibles, flip with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at verses 18 through 31. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, he changes topic, and he starts to address this two worldviews, and he says this, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs, and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. Amen. To Jews, a stumbling block. And to Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Amen. For consider your calling, brethren. That there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Amen. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So let's break this down, because there's a lot happening there. The first thing that he presents to us is this fact here. The world is at war with the kingdom of God. And what he's saying to these people is, you guys have tried to live in both worlds, and it doesn't work. It doesn't work because where we start 
is that the word of the cross is viewed as foolishness to the world. It's stupidity to them. You as a person cannot live in two worlds where the other one looks at this one and goes, that's dumb. Like in this world, in this age, can you be both a Republican and a Democrat? How's it, how would that work? How would you even start to explain that to someone? How would you even describe your political views in that scenario? You can't. Those two parties are so far apart on so many things that to say, oh, I'm right in the middle, doesn't work anymore. Now, you can rewind in time, and there was a day in time where they actually weren't that far apart. And there was a day in time where they had exactly the same views of where they wanted to go, just very different paths to get there. So while the outcome and the strategy was the same, it was the tactics that they were arguing about. And there you could find moderation because it was like, we all want the same thing. We just kind of argue about how to get there. But where do you sit today as you go, no, they don't want the same thing. And so moderation doesn't exist. And so that's what Christ is saying here. This is what God's saying here through Paul. Is, guys, the world doesn't look at the wisdom of the cross and go, that's kind of nice. The world looks at Jesus. The world looks at the Bible and goes, that's stupidity. That is foolishness and only idiots believe in that. Over the last week, I've been making my car drive even more aggravating than normal. Um, I like to listen to books on tape because it's, it's a good right way for me to get through because I'm in the car so often. And so I've been listening to Sam Harris, who is called one of the four horsemen of atheism. And so it's a whole book he's written on why faith is stupid. And it makes me so angry listening to it. <laughs> I hear these points and I wish I could argue with him and debate it because I'm like, that's a dumb point right there. But it's beautiful to hear it. Because it makes me realize I have to think about how other people view my beliefs. And I believe, knowing his viewpoints, his arguments, the things that he will throw at Christ to say Christ isn't real, me knowing those is important. Because if I run into one where I literally have no answer, well, then I should think about that. I should dig into the Word for that. And most of them I hear and go, actually, there is an answer to that. Which now puts me into a place of confidence where I know if I'm ever talking to somebody with those same viewpoints, I'm perfectly ready to have that conversation. But as you walk through this and talk to this person, what you realize is he has a very huge worldview. And his stance is, the thing that has killed the world is all the middle ground people who are okay with the faithful. So when he's reading this book, he says, I'm not actually writing to anybody of faith. Because they're idiots and they're not of a belief. What I'm actually writing to is all the people who don't believe, but are okay with their idiot neighbors believing in some fantasy fairy tale God. As long as our culture allows for a bunch of people to believe in a fairy tale, we're in trouble. We need the majority to tell the faithful there's no room for them. That's exactly what Paul's describing here. Those who really embrace the view of the world don't go, well, hey, I don't agree with you guys, but as long as you're over here and don't bug anybody, no big deal. The people that really embrace the views of the world go, there's no room for you here. There's no room for you here. 
because your thoughts are dangerous. Your thoughts are scary. Actually, a couple months ago, or actually I think a year now, time flies, I was watching a debate between Bill Nye the Science Guy and uh, Ken Hams, who's a creationist. And Bill Nye the Science Guy said, look, I'll just be honest with you, no person who believes in a god should ever be allowed to be a doctor, a scientist, or a mathematician. If you can believe in that, there's no way you can add value in any of those fields. That was his stance. And it was funny because Ken Ham's like, do you want to start talking about the number of scientists who've created inventions and won Nobel Peace Prize that are Christians? Do you want to talk about the fact that mathematics and science were created by Christians? Do you want to talk about that the love for education and most of the higher education institutes in this country were formed by religious people to teach religion? Do you want to talk about that? And what the science guy said is it's intellectual suicide to believe in God. Do you understand that? His view is the moment you say I believe in God, you're an idiot. You're a moron. And so what Paul is trying to get here is, hey believers, why are you trying to live in both worlds? It's incompatible. It doesn't work. Your belief in a God that loves you and shaped you and made you and died for you. Your belief in a heaven. Your belief in a spirit. Your belief in right and wrong. That's stupidity to the world. You have to choose. You have to choose where you live. You have to choose how you act. Are you a person of the world or are you a person of the kingdom of God? It's an all or nothing. There is no straddling the line. Look what he says. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this stage? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Amen. See, what Paul's calling to task is the same lie you and I see every day. And we talk about this all the time. Do the lies of the world ever actually play out? Like, we see a bunch of rich people. Does, rich pe does having lots of money guarantee happiness? Okay. No. But how many of us are still chasing it? <laughs> I guarantee you, probably 99% of the people in this room right now, if I told you I'd give you a million dollars, you'd probably go, oh, our troubles would be gone. <laughs> my life would be, oh my gosh, I don't even need a million. I'll take 100,000. I'll take 10. I'll take one. <laughs> And so we would say, no, I don't believe money makes me happy. But part of you goes, no, money would make me really happy right now. <laughs> and you'd probably use some justification of technicality, like, money doesn't make you happy, but it makes happiness more available. Well, let's be real. We see a bunch of people with lots of money and they're not happy. We saw a lot of people who are famous and they're not happy. We see a lot of people who are popular and they're not happy. We see a lot of people who have sex all the time and they're not happy. We see a lot of people who pursue drugs and alcohol and all these things that give pleasure and they're not happy. Amen. And Paul's point is, the world lies to you. It lies to you. It has told you to go after these things and that it will give you what you want, but it doesn't. And that's what he's calling out. He's like, where are these people? Bring them and have them argue the ways. You know what I always love about the, the scientific mindset people? Their world must be unbelievably scary. Because they can't explain anything. 
Amen. You can take the smartest, most capable scientist in all the world, give them all the technology in the universe. You can give them any chemical, any composition, anything, and go, make life. And they go, I can't do that. So how do you explain this? The one thing you literally see millions of times every day, everywhere you go, you can't duplicate, you can't make it, you don't know why it's there. Amen. Yet you're a person of science. bake themselves on theories that have huge gaping wounds of facts. But go, I'm, a, I'm an intellectual. I only base my things on things I can prove. It's not true. That's what they want to say. That's what they want to believe. But they've adopted this view because what they really don't want is there to be a God that they're accountable to. Amen. People who want to lead their own lives are terrified that there might be somebody watching. There might be somebody judging, and there might be somebody that we eventually have to stand in front of and explain why we did what we did. That terrifies us. We'd rather live in a world where we just cease to exist one day than to know one day I might have to explain what I did with my life. Amen. And so Paul's calling for a debate. He's calling for these people to show up. And he says, For indeed Jews ask for signs, and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block, and to Gentiles foolishness. So what he's saying is, this message just never, never hits home with certain people. The Jews had so locked themselves into the Messiah being this mighty military king, that to preach the Messiah's Jesus, who, who came and preached and was killed, no, that can't work. That can't work. He's got to be a military leader. He's going to wipe out the Romans and he's going to build a, a brand new temple and he's... He, no, that can't be it. That's stupid. And it wasn't because they could go back in the Word and actually look through any of the verses and go, you know what? This disproves your Christ. It didn't have to do with the Word. It had to do with what they wanted. For years, they had been oppressed. For years, they had been put aside. For years, they had had their rights taken from them. For years, they had been told they were second class. They wanted somebody to come and make that right. They wanted someone to come and go, <laughs> you've been putting me down for decades. Now I'm going to put you down. Now we're going to have one of us rise up, and we're going to put you in our place. Now you're going to eat the dirt. That's what they really wanted. And so when the Messiah shows up and goes, that's not what I'm going to do. Amen. I'm going to love them. Amen. You're right. What they did to you is wrong. What they did to you hurt you. But I ain't here for vengeance. I'm here for love. Amen. In fact, those people you hate, I'm going to die for them. And I'm going to offer them the chance to actually become part of our family. Amen. For the Jews, it's like, no, come on. It reminds you of Jonah. Do you remember when Jonah gets in trouble in the Old Testament? He gets in trouble because God comes to Jonah and he goes, I want you to go to Nineveh and I want you to preach that I am angry with them. And I want you to preach that wrath is coming. And Jonah runs. And Jonah hides. Amen. And God finds him. What you finally get to is, it's not that Jonah doubted God. It was that Jonah knew God so well, he ran. And the reason he ran was this. He goes, eventually, I hate the Ninevites. And I knew, God, if you sent me to preach to them, they repent, 
You'd forgive them, and everything would be okay. So I didn't want to go preach to them. Because I don't want them to be forgiven. I want them to die. That's what he wanted. That's where a lot of the Jews stood. And so when a God of love and peace comes, my goodness, they can't, they can't digest this. That's why they kept asking for signs. Because the problem for them was, they go through the book and they're like, it, everything he's doing matches up with this, but this can't be, this can't be, this doesn't fit how I thought of it. So they keep trying to test him. They keep trying to challenge him. They keep asking for more. But it was never enough. Even him coming back from the dead wasn't enough. Because when you have embraced foolishness, and you have made it your life, and you've made it your God, to admit that your whole life is built on sand is too much. Amen. I'll be honest with you, I always get real nervous when I'm asked to help talk to somebody about God after their 40s. And it's funny because you would think somebody in their 40s actually has the life experience that would make them more akin to God's knowledge. Right, normally by that point in life, you failed enough to know you failure is real for everyone. Normally at that point, you've messed up enough to know that your best isn't good enough. At that point, you've normally lived enough to realize that sometimes really bad stuff happens to you you had no control over. Yeah. Normally by that point, you're willing to admit like, I could use some help every now and then. At that point, you're not like a teenager who just never assumes death's going to happen. Like you're realize, like, young people, they just never think it could be them, right? But the reality for people over 40 where I've always run into trouble talking to them is it's not the intellectual thing to get to understanding Christ and what he offers. It's that at that juncture, I now need to admit that I've gone 40 years the wrong way. Amen. What you want me to admit is too costly. You want me to admit that I chose a career without Christ. You want me to admit I chose a spouse without Christ. You want me to admit that I've raised my children for most of the years that I get them without Christ. You want me to take these huge life decisions where he should have been central. I didn't involve him at all. And you want me to admit I did those wrong. At that point, it's not about intellectual capacity anymore. It's about pride. I can't admit I've messed up that bad. So you know what? I'm just going to write it out. I'm just going to write it out. I'm, I'm past the point of no return. People don't want to admit that point. They can turn back. It's too big for them. And for the Jews, that was how it was. You want us to admit that for thousands of years, we viewed this completely and utterly the wrong way. In fact, do you want us to admit that? That means we're responsible for killing the Messiah. Amen. You want me to admit that? It's too big. It's too big for them. The pride will allow them to move. And for the Greeks, they're sitting here and they're going, no, 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 no. Wisdom and philosophy elevates you. Wisdom and philosophy is to make yourself great. You guys lose from the start. Your great philosopher was murdered. He was put to death in the most shameful, disgusting way possible. The whole point of our philosophies is for us to look excellent, for us to look brilliant, 
for us to be wise, for us to be great, for our names to be remembered forever. And you want me to give up my philosophy to follow a guy who after three years was crucified. That's today like you know, following a philosopher who was sent to the electric chair. That's shameful. That's disgusting. That's gross. Why would we do that? That doesn't elevate us. And so Paul's point is, guys, to these people, what we preach, it makes no sense at all. Amen. And I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, like, you want to you have this conversation today? So easy. Go tell people that the point of Christianity is to become a slave. Amen. People will look at you and be like, are you crazy? Especially American people. Because we don't ever talk about slavery. There's too much baggage there. There's too many negative feelings. There's too much ugliness. There's too much. So you tell people, the point of Christianity is to become a slave to Jesus. People will back up on you real quick. Even Christians. That's what it is. The point of Christianity is I wake up and I go, I don't want to lead this life anymore. I've ran my own way. I've been my own master. And I'm bad at it. There is one who is perfect, who is loving, who is knowledgeable, who shaped me, who built me, and has a purpose for me. And he died on a cross to save me. He paid for my life with his death. And he doesn't force me to be his slave. He asks me if I want to. And the answer for me is, yes. I want to be in his house. I want him to make the plan. I want him to pave the way. I want him to show up in the morning and go, Luke, this is where we're going, and this is what we're doing. I want it. Amen. It's not forced upon me. It's my choice. But again, just go explain that to the people in this country that you want to be a slave. And they'll look at you like you're crazy. But that's what God offers. That's what he's pointing to. And so what Christ is saying here is understand this. Understand it for two reasons. One for you. You can't live in both worlds. There's no such thing as a carnal Christian. There's no such thing as a worldly Christian. And, and brothers and sisters, we pastors are as much to blame for that as anybody else. Because over the years, we fell in love with success by the standards of the world, which meant butts and seats. The more people in my church, the more money I have, the more influence I have, the more programs I can run, the more impact we can make in the community. And hey, if they're here, maybe eventually they'll actually believe what we're talking about. And so we preach easy believism. We preach that all you got to do is walk the aisle, say a prayer, take a dip in the pool, and we're good to go. It's easy. No. Become a Christian is for you to go, I give everything I am and all I have to Christ. Amen. To become a Christian is to say, I'm His. Amen. Through and through. I give Him everything. Because He gave me everything. Amen. To be a Christian is not to say, you get this one little piece of me. It's not to say, here's my fire insurance in case I die. It's to say, here's everything I got. It's yours, Lord. And I will follow you each day, every moment, to wherever you ask me to go. Even if it terrifies me, even if I'm not sure I understand it, what I trust is you. And so where you want me to go, I go. It's everything. 
And when we lost that message, we turned this into some kind of country club. Say a magic prayer, walk the aisle, you're good to go. And that's why you have so many people who their lives don't look different. It's why you probably know so many people who have tried Christianity and come back going, I don't know, it just kind of left me empty. It's because the starting point, we treat it like the finishing point. The moment you accept Christ is not the end. That's the beginning. That's the start of the new life. That's the moment where the junk's thrown away. You now have purpose and passion and power. And now you get to go live. But what we often do is like, okay, you're saved. You're good. So you just stay over there. We'll see you when we die. Let me go talk to other people who aren't saved now. And this, the most exciting part of life just started for you. So we have to understand this, and this is hard. The world is at war with the kingdom of God. And that's why you need to be careful about how you entertain yourself. You need to be careful about your life streams. You need to be careful about the careers you choose. You need to be careful about the way you raise your children. You need to be careful when you're outside those walls. Because the world out there is not pulling you to Christ. It's trying to pull you away from Him. You don't want to see this? You just watch people at your own church when life starts going sideways on them. Do you know where the first place they stop going is? Church. Church. Because this is that anchor. This is that place holding them firm in their faith. This is that place that in the darkness is pulling them back saying, brother, don't get lost. Sister, don't veer. And so the moment Satan can cut that tether, he knows he's got them. He knows he's got them. Because anywhere they turn out there, they're going to get the same logic. It may sound a little bit different. It may be packaged a little bit different. But ultimately, it will preach and teach the exact same thing. But there's a second part in this passage that I think is probably the most beautiful part of the gospel. God uses what the world throws away. So this is a really weird thing because it's so... It's one of those ones you've got to pay attention to. Because when you first hear it, you're like, does that make sense? The gospel teaches us that you are not enough. But then God comes to those that have been told they're not enough and tells them you're everything you need to be. The difference in those two things, you go, how can those both be true? How can it both be true that I'm not enough to earn heaven, but I am more than enough to get God? And the reason for that is, is you have to understand what's happening. Every other religion, every other philosophy, every other way of life teaches you on your own, by yourself, all enough to elevate yourself to paradise. Amen. Whether that's here on earth, whether that's somewhere else, you, through your effort, your talent, your ability, you can achieve it. Now let's even be real. I hate this because I, I love America. I love so much about this country. I love so much about what we fought for, what we've been, what we've stood by. I love so many of those things. We're not perfect, and we've made some huge mistakes. But I also go compare that legacy to any other nations, and I think you will have a hard time finding one that has tried so often to fight for right. But I'll be real with you. We lie a lot. Like part of the American dream is we tell kids, you can be anything you want to be. No, you can't. I wanted to be in the NBA. There was a certain point at my age I realized that wasn't going to (laughs) happen. 
the fact that my 40 time is six seconds, that my vertical is two inches, and that I can't shoot a basketball eventually got in the way of the effort I was putting into the game. And I realized at a certain point, it didn't even matter how much I practiced. I mean, I'll be real with you. I love basketball in a way that most people don't. I would play basketball so often in the summer, my fingers would bleed. I'd go outside as soon as I wouldn't get in trouble from neighbors for dribbling a basketball. I would dribble all the way and play all the way until lunch. I'd eat like five minutes of lunch, go back out, and just keep going until dinner time. I loved it. I was still bad at it. I mean, I got slightly better, but not good. <laughs> For me, I learned it wasn't about effort on that. I didn't end up with the talent that was needed to be there. There wasn't nothing I was going to change about that. I think all of us have those moments where we wake up and realize, like, I don't know if I could have ever been what I wanted to be. But the world tells you you can. And so the beauty is, is what God's saying to you is if you're trying to earn perfection, you'll never do it on your own. Amen. And what you and I need to understand is all of us are trying to earn perfection. Amen. You may go, no, no, I'm not. But you are. Here's why. You were handcrafted by God. God's the master creator. He made us. And the reason He made us was for relationship with Him. Amen. So what you were built for, what your heart and soul long for, is to be in perfect intimacy with a perfect being, with unlimited love, unlimited compassion, unlimited power. That is what, whether you can verbalize that or not, that's what your soul is crying out for. Amen. And that's why, no matter how much you achieve here, how much money, how much power, how much influence, how much love, how much fame you can gain here, it will never match up to perfect love from a perfect God with unlimited grace and unlimited power. And that's why people who always want more just are always unsatisfied. Because they literally, literally you can't attain that in this world. And so the message of the gospel starts with what your soul is crying for, you're not good enough to get. Amen. The beautiful part is you don't have to. The beautiful part is God says, that's okay because I'm going to give it to you. You, you could have earned it, but you don't have to earn it. I did and I'm giving it to you. Amen. And so the beautiful part of this is well, that gift is available to everybody. And it's typically the proud and the arrogant who are still trying to prove, I can do this. Amen. But never get it. Right? The help's right there. But they're so proud, they'll never take the help. Because they're still trying to prove, I'm good enough. I can do this. And man, that resonates. I used to be that way. I used to be that way with certain classes in school. Right? The writing was on the wall from grades, that this was probably above my capacities. I probably needed help. I probably needed a tutor. I probably needed extra study time. And people would offer it, but I was like, no. I don't need help. I got this. Only weak people ask for help. I'll take care of this. And I eventually had to learn, like, no, you aren't going to take care of it. You're going to fail. 
And so what's funny and what's beautiful is, is who the gospel has always been so beautiful to is those that the world has beat down. The people who've always been like so accepting of this message are the ones that have been thrown away by the world. Because all day, every day, they're getting pounded. Everywhere they go, they got people telling them they're not smart enough, they're not good enough, they're not talented enough, you're not loved, we don't want you. Get out, get lost, be gone. And then all of a sudden there's a God going, you're good enough for me. You don't have to change a single thing. Who you are right now is enough for me. I give you my love. I will die for you. And so the crazy thing about the gospel has always been is that the most intelligent, the most beautiful, the most eloquent, the most amazing people have often rejected it because they're still trying to prove they can be perfect on their own. And it is often all the rejects of the world who've been pushed aside that go right to God. And then you know what he goes? I'm going to lift you guys up and do things with you no one ever dreamt of. And look at what he says. Look at what he says here. He says, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And all of this, look at 26. He tells them, reflect on this. He tells them, pause and look at yourselves. He says, for consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame those which are strong. Amen. And so what he's saying is he's looking at the Corinthians, he's like, be real. How many of you before God came into your life were considered the noblest, the most powerful, or the wisest? And now what has God done with you? And in fact, if you ever want to look for a theme in the Bible, this is one of the biggest ones. God takes the rejects and the fools that the world has said are worth nothing, and then he elevates them and does things with them that change the course of history. Moses is an 80-year-old, on-the-run murderer, taking care of sheep in the wilderness. God shows up and goes, you're going to become the greatest leader the world has ever seen. You're going to free my people from the mightiest military that exists. You're going to create a culture that will reshape the history of mankind. And your name will go down as one of the most remembered by more religious people than anybody can remember. Amen. God shows up to David, who remember, David is of such little acclaim in his own family that when they ask his father to line up all his children, Jesse forgets David. Amen. He lines up all his kids. He's like, here, here they are. Here's all of them. Guy goes through all of them. He's like, this is all of them? Oh, no. Wait, there's one more. There's David. Let me go get him. God takes that one and rises him up to be one of the wealthiest, wisest, most eloquent kings that's ever lived. Amen. Remember a few weeks ago we were talking about the apostles? Right? The performing miracles that get pulled in front of the court being accused of doing these blasphemous things. The whole thing set up to intimidate them. And instead, these men don't cower. They don't back down. They start preaching the gospel to those who are telling them they never should. Amen. And in that moment, their enemies go. These guys were with Jesus, weren't they? We don't see boldness like this. These are uneducated, untrained lay people. And they stand here with a boldness, authority, and eloquence that there's no way comes from them. God has used them. 
That is the beauty of the gospel. Is God takes the rejected things and He uses them to show His power, His glory, and His mastery. It's such a beautiful thing. Because it's a message that says to each and every one of us, at your darkest and lowliest and worst moments, God still looks at you and goes, you're enough for me. Yeah, what a feeling that is. What a feeling that is. Because brothers and sisters, it's so easy to find those who will remind you what you're not capable of. It's so easy to find people who will put you down. I swear, in our society, I think it's, it's more prevalent than ever before. Like, you can just almost predict nowadays, right? Someone's going to get their 15 minutes of fame, and then within two hours, we're going to dig up every tweet they've ever sent in their entire lives. We're going to find the worst ones, publicize them, and then take this person that three hours ago we didn't know about, two hours ago we were celebrating, and now three hours from now, they're the worst human being that's ever lived. Because back in 2002, they said this. And that defines them. And, and hey, brothers and sisters, just a side note on that. Always be careful with that because I'll be real with you. I don't think there's a single one of us that hasn't said something that we would hate to have out there publicly. I think most of us, if you knew us well enough and could just dig through and cherry pick the statements we've made over the years and you could publish them, I'm pretty sure you can make each and every one of us look like really bad people. That's what the world does. They love it. Amen. They love it. That's not what God does. In fact, often the greatest struggle that God has with His people is getting them to believe they're capable of what He says. Amen. That is often where people struggle. Flip with me just real quick and we'll end here. With Judges chapter 6. In Judges chapter 6, God decides he needs to lift someone up to fight for his nation. God decides he's going to raise up a warrior who is going to help free his people. But in Judges chapter 6, when God shows up to tell this man, it doesn't go the way that you would expect. It says, Then the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hands of the Midians for seven years. The power of the Midian prevailed against Israel because of Midian, the sons of Israel, made for themselves the dens which were in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For it was when Israel had sown that the Midianites would come up with the Immaculites and the sons of the east and go against them. So they would camp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza. They leave no sustenance in Israel, as well as no sheep, ox, or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents, and they would come in like locusts for number. Both they and their camels were innumerable, and they came in the land to devastate it. So Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the sons of Israel cried to the Lord. So God's saying, the Midianites are wiping out Israel. They kill their produce, they kill their animals. The Israelites are hiding in caves and, and in nooks and crannies of the world because if they're ever seen, all their stuff's destroyed. Now it came about when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord on the account of Midian that the Lord sent a prophet to the sons of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, It was I who brought you up from Egypt and brought you out from the house of slavery. I delivered you from the hands of the Egyptians and from the hands of all your oppressors and dispossessed them before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, 
I am the Lord your God, and you shall not fear the God of the Amorites, whose land you live in. But you have not obeyed me. And so God reminds them, don't lose faith in me. We've been through worse. We've been through worse, and I made you victorious in those moments. I'll make you victorious again, if you will follow me. Thus the angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak that was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Aborite, as his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress in order to save it from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. Man, is that not the coolest introduction you could get from God? Give me God showing up to you and be like, It's good to see you, O valiant warrior. I feel like, I always knew I had a cool name. Yes! Right? I mean, most of us would assume if you see God face to face, the first thing would be like, let's talk about what you were doing yesterday. Right? Instead, he shows up to Gideon and goes, oh, valiant warrior. You'd think that would be music to Gideon's ears, that God calls him like this. But Gideon said to him, oh, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? Where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about? saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hands of the Midians. The Lord looked at him and said, Go, in this your strength, and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? He said to him, This is Gideon, O Lord, how shall I deliver Israel? Behold, my family is the least in Manasseh, and I am the youngest in my father's house. You see what happens there? God shows up, looks at Gideon and goes, O valiant warrior, I have called you to free your people. And Gideon goes, Me? I am the weakest member of the weakest family of the weakest tribe in the weakest nation. (laughs) Me? Do you know who you're talking to? God's response is, Yes, do you know who you're talking to? Amen. The hardest thing that God often has is to tell the people that He's going to use them for greatness to believe they're capable of it. Amen. And sometimes it's beautifully ironic. Because think, think of when He shows up. Gideon's in a wine press taking care of crops. Now, if you're not a farmer, wine presses are not typically where you grow your crops. So why is He there? Because it's below ground. He can't be seen. He's hiding taking care of crops, hoping nobody sees him. God shows up in this moment of kind of like terrified shame and goes, mighty warrior. And Gideon's like, mighty warrior? Do you see me? Do you see me right now? I am hiding, taking care of crops that I'm then going to tuck between my tail, run to the mountains and hide. Mighty warrior. And God goes, yes, you are. Son, I'm the one that built you. I'm the one that shaped you. I'm the one that knows every single day that you have. I know the number of hairs on your head, and if I call you mighty warrior, that is what you are. That is the faith we have to have. And that, brothers and sisters, is why I will be his slave all day, every day. Because when I'm the master, you know what I tell myself? I tell myself, I'm the least of the least of the least. When he's the master, he shows up and goes, you mighty warrior, you will lead my people. He empowers, he lifts up, and he pours his love and his forgiveness and his grace into his people. But brothers and sisters, here's what you have to know. Those two messages can't mix. I cannot both believe that I am the worst of the worst of the worst and that I am God's chosen one. 
I can't walk the line between those two and go anywhere of value. I have to choose. Do I embrace the wisdom of the world or do I embrace the wisdom of God? I gotta choose. And for some of you, you're where the Corinthians are. You're trying to do both. You hear God calling, but you know where He leads is not what the world highlights, not what it glorifies. You've got two voices calling at you and you're trying to decide where to go. And what you do is you bounce back and forth. And you know where you end up? Nowhere. Paul shares this with them because they got to choose. And I share it with you because you have to choose. Do you want the wisdom of the cross or the wisdom of the world? You can't have both. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord. And we just pray that you will call to our spirits in such a way that we know it's you. I pray, Father, that these people will know your voice so well that when they're out behind the enemy lines, when the culture of the world is pulling them away, that, Father, they will always hear your voice. I pray, Lord, that they know your love and your sacrifice and the way that you look at them, the way that you love them. And I pray, Father, that even in those moments where they may be scared or confused or worried, that they will know as long as they have their eyes locked on you and that their steps bring them closer to you, they are going the right way. Father, let us not be divided. Let us be unified as we move each and every moment closer to you. Father, we love you. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, Maria is going to come up and lead us in a closing song. I'll be up at the front. If there's anything that you would like to pray with me about, feel free to come up. And as always, if you don't feel comfortable coming up during service, please seek me out afterwards and we can talk. Maria. Let's all stand. from above I've been down to the river I ain't the same a prodigal return all my hope is in Jesus God, my yesterday's gone, and all my sins are forgiven, and I've been washed by the blood. I'm no stranger to the prison. I've worn shackles and chains, but I've been free 
yes I have I'm not going back I'll never be the same That's why I sing All my hope is in Jesus Thank God my yesterday is gone And all my sins are forgiven And I've been washed by the blood There's a kind of thing that just breaks me Break him down to his knees God, I've been broken more than a time or two Yes, I have Then he picked me up And showed me what it means to be a man Come on and sing All my hope is in Jesus Yesterday's gone, and all my sins are forgiven, and I've been washed by the blood. real quick for you guys today after service if you are a parent of any of the children that are in our youth group or in our children's group I'm going to ask you to hang out for about 15 minutes we want to talk to you guys about a couple things we're going to do this year in the children's and youth program so again that's right after service today the other big announcement is on February 3rd we are doing during service the ordination for Matt Moriante and Pablo Frasto and so on that day we won't be having Spanish service at 930 and English at 11 we're going to do one service at 11 11 o'clock for both of them, okay? So we ask you to uh, remember that date and keep that in mind. All right, so again, children's meeting today and then ordination on the third during service. As always, it is such a blessing to worship with you guys. I remind you, God put you here to glorify Him. We do that by building a family that loves God, loves people, and follows Jesus. And He has given you a spirit of power, love, and self-discipline. That means you're dangerous. That means you're a force to be reckoned with. That means you can go out into the enemy lines out there and you can walk the walk and follow him. So you have a great week. You make disciples and I love you all. Have a good one.